what is really going on in the world while we're busy keeping up with the Kardashians or whatever it is people are doing. (laughs) Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to the Bible Geeks podcast. This is episode 17. I'm Brian Sheely. I'm Ryan Joy. And thanks, everyone, for tuning in. Our last challenge was to put into place at least one of the habits from the book, The Common Rule, that we were talking about in our love episode last week. So how'd you do with that this week? The main thing I've continued doing is having these alarms set basically every three hours throughout the day. That has been really good just to keep me coming back. It seems like so much of living in Christ has to do with how often I realign myself with him. And so, you know, you can't be thinking about scripture or saying a prayer or worshiping or things like that all the time. But it's like the more you just play that tuning fork and get yourself in tune throughout the day, you never seem to go flat or sharp. You know what I mean? It seems to keep (laughs) you more online. So just having that realignment every few hours has been really the biggest impact because that's the main daily habit. I've also been doing the scripture before phone, and I think that's really helpful too. How about you? Well, I think you just described my entire last week. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So I have also been setting timers to remind myself throughout the day periodically to take a break, go outside, you know, sit down and have a prayer. And I've also been every morning I've rejiggered my do not disturb on my phone so that Mm. it kind of locks me out of everything except for my bible app and a couple of other resources and i get up in the morning i used to sit down on the couch and read through the news and now i've replaced that with reading through some passage or some commentary in the morning wow and that's been a really helpful way to wake up and kind of start the day. So I've been doing that. Like that. I did actually start reading The Common Rule this last week. So I'm about halfway through. Super great book. I'm really enjoying it. So thanks for the recommendation. Oh yeah. All right. So let's get into our Jesus said segment and I have a verse for you this week. It is from the book of John. I love the book of John. It's probably one of my favorite of the gospels. This is the instance in John chapter 3 where a Pharisee named Nicodemus comes to Jesus and it says that he comes to him by night sneaking around behind the scenes or whatever and in verse 2 Nicodemus comes to Jesus and he says rabbi we know that you are a teacher come from God for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him and Jesus answered him and said truly truly I say to you unless one is born again he cannot see the kingdom of God So what do you think? The metaphor of birth brings you to thinking about your own birth, but I don't remember my own birth. No, I don't either. So then it brings me to thinking about watching these little people that I am getting to see become interesting individual humans, my children, watching them be born. It's a crazy, strange experience to see someone come into the world and then to have that sense that this is a new person. 
And that is what Jesus is saying here, I think, is you have to re-enter the world as a new person. You have to be born, not from your mom, but from above. And that really speaks to this change to who you are. It's about creation. It's about becoming. It's about a new identity. You're born again so that you are not who you were. You were born again of water in baptism and of the Holy Spirit recreating you and regenerating you in those waters. You are not who you were. And the challenge then to me is to ask, am I living like who I was or am I living as if I was born fresh that day? It's interesting to me that he uses this picture about being born again as a response to Nicodemus's statement that we know that you are a teacher come from God for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. His answer seems to be very disconnected or disassociated from Nicodemus's statement. Mm-hmm. But I think they're connected in the way that Jesus is really saying, I am a teacher, I am doing these signs, and here's the most important message that you need to hear. Mm-hmm. Your life has to change. Mm-hmm. Imagine being in Nicodemus's shoes, hearing this for the first time. You think Jesus is saying, I have to go through a physical birth again. And that doesn't make any sense. That's impossible. And mm-hmm. Jesus goes on to clarify and respond to him, say, no, I'm not talking about the flesh here. I'm talking about a spiritual regeneration, a spiritual recreation. So many great truths that Jesus restates from the Old Testament, like love your neighbor as yourself or love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind, as we talked about last week. But if Jesus just stated those profound truths, I could see Nicodemus doing something I do sometimes, which is to say, yeah, yeah, I know about that. I've heard Mm -hmm. that, you know? Yeah. And so he brings something new, I think, to jar him. He needs to shake him up a little bit so that he can hear. There is something more than just knowledge and insight that you need from me as a teacher from God. You think you know, but everything that's most important is on the other side. It's in that realm of what you don't know you don't know. Right. Yeah. And so he needs to get across to him something that's going to confuse him so that he can get in that place of, wait, is there something I don't know? Or is this guy just completely making nonsense statements here? <laughs> and that brings him into this place where he can think, what would it mean to be born from above? This is a requirement that Jesus is putting forth here. It's a mm-hmm. gating factor for seeing the kingdom of God. You can't enter this kingdom and the Jews were looking for a kingdom. They were looking for, well, an earthly kingdom more or less, but they were looking for this establishment that was going to be set up that the Bible had been talking about for hundreds of years before this event. They were looking for that. And so he's saying, in a sense, this thing you're looking for has a requirement put on it that means that you have to change. You have to be different. You have to be a new creation. So that is, again, a big motivator. If you really want to be a part of this new kingdom, you're not just going to slide in. And my favorite part of this whole passage is really what he says about what it means to be of the spirit or spiritual person. He says that which is born in the flesh in verse six 
is flesh. He says that which is born of the spirit is spirit. And he gives this picture. He says, don't be amazed at this. The wind blows where it wants and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. And so it is with everyone who's born of the spirit. You can't see the spirit just like you can't see the wind blowing around. You don't know where it's coming from, where it's going, where it is. You can't touch it, but you can see the leaves moving around. You Mm. can hear the sound of it whipping through the trees. You know it's there by its effect. And how do you know someone is born again? You see the spirit's effect in their lives. Which I guess pretty easily ties into our last series on the fruit of the spirit. Absolutely. That's one of the best ways to tell whether or not you or someone else is a spiritual person, has been born again by the spirit. You can tell by all the things we've spent the last few weeks talking about. That's a good way to wrap it up, I think. Yeah. All right, so we are going to talk in this next segment about the book of Ephesians. We're doing another flying through the book segment. I feel the need, the need for speed. Ow! So we chose the book of Ephesians really out of the depth that it offers. It's a deep couple of chapters. Let's just go through this thing real quickly, and let's start off by introducing the book. Who wrote it? Who is he writing it to? What's the context surrounding the writing of this book? We're not certain if it was to the Ephesians or not, but we know that it was Paul writing to Gentile Christians in this period when he was imprisoned. But when you read it, it reads more like a sermon than Mm -hmm. a letter. This book is full of sweeping declarations with this cosmic epic scope to it about the eternal purposes of God and what's happening in the heavenly places. And constantly there's this tone of prayer and praise. I mean, the whole first three chapters are almost all prayer. And then there's this unity to the book that is really unique. I mean, he doesn't go off on tangents. He's really focused on these themes he wants to build. Which is unlike Paul. Yeah, Paul's one of my people. He's, he's like me. He likes to, <laughs> he's got a lot of thoughts to chase down, and you got to keep up with him as he bounces around. But, but here he's very focused. It's, of course, a similar book to the book of Colossians, but just more robust and even more unified. And so the purpose of the book is that Paul wants to firmly fix in these Gentiles, and of course in us as well, their new identity so that they are inspired to live the life that God has planned for them from eternity. So what is the identity of these Gentile Christians? So the first three chapters really are focused on the good news of the richness of God. And chapter one, the whole main point here is that there's a mystery from long ago in the Old Testament And that mystery was that Jesus, the Messiah, is going to come and unite both the Jews and the Gentiles. And he's going to adopt them. He's going to bring them into his family and make them into God's family. And a Jew hearing this probably would have thought that was absurd. But Jesus came to reveal to them the mystery that God's whole purpose all along was to bring all nations to himself. And that meant both Jews and Gentiles. So if he's writing primarily to Gentiles here, this has got to make his audience feel very good that they are adopted into the family of God. And so 
he starts off with some greetings here in the first few verses of chapter 1, and then he uses this beautiful prayer from verses 3 through 14, really all about the spiritual blessings that are in Christ, the amazing spiritual blessings that come from what Christ did for us. These blessings were established before the foundation of the world. This was always God's plan. So he finishes off the chapter praying for them, praying for his audience, earnestly desiring that they would be enlightened, that they would be able to know something of depth and substance about what Jesus is doing and what this whole plan was all about. He says in verse 18, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. He wants them to know some things at the end of this chapter. This mystery that was before the foundation of the world was the purpose of God to unite things in heaven and things on earth. So he's bringing this earthly kingdom, this earthly family, and uniting that with the heavenly family and the heavenly kingdom. And so the big point that I get from chapter one is that The same God who raised Jesus from the dead, he's the same God who unites all people together into a new covenant family. Why is God doing all this? Why did God have this plan to unite all of these people, Jews and Gentiles, from the foundation of the world? Yeah, and in a word, the answer to that is love. Yeah. It's because of who God is. So this chapter is all about how God is changing you, changing who you are because he loves you. In this chapter, he keeps going from who you were to who you are. So verses 1 to 3, you were dead. Verses 4 to 10, now you're alive by grace. Mm -hmm. Verses 11 and 12, you were separated, alien. Verses 13 to 22, the rest of the chapter says, but now... You're reconciled with God and you're reconciled with his people. You now have peace. You've been made one with all the Jews and the Gentiles who are in Christ now as one temple to God. In verse 19, he kind of summarizes all this. He says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. That is, you're part of the family of God now. So the main insight I take from all of this is that how I think about myself changes the way I live. Paul brings them to their identity change so that he can bring them to a lifestyle change. And those are not automatic changes that come. But the more you understand this is who I am now, why am I living like who I was, then you keep developing those new patterns of life. So what was Paul's role in all of this? His work was basically to be a minister of this great mystery. He was charged with going out into all of the world and bringing this mystery to light, making people aware of what God was really doing because of his love, because of his grace, because of his mercy, what God was really doing in uniting this family of his. And it's important, I think, to note that This is one of the four letters that were written while Paul was in prison. But you don't get the picture here that he's upset about that or that he's down because of that. And then he prays that they would be able to comprehend Christ's immeasurable love. So we kind of get this same sense from chapter one. 
here in chapter three, he wants them to really understand what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. That's his goal. He's out there preaching so that they can continue to know more and more and more about God and his love and what Jesus has done. The insight I'm getting from this is that Paul suffers greatly for his faith, but you certainly couldn't tell that by the way that he views his role in the work. He's amazed at the work he's doing. He's amazed at the work that God is doing through him, and he's not wallowing in self-pity or upset about his circumstances. Brings you back to Philippians. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Joy in every bad thing happening. He keeps finding joy. He keeps seeing God's hand. Yeah. Amazingly resilient in his faith. Exactly. And so Paul then, at the end of chapter 3, beginning of chapter 4, transitions to the next major division of the book of Ephesians, talking about our new life. So how does Paul even go about describing this new life? He uses this word, walk. Yeah. <laughs> Think of that scene from Young Frankenstein where the guy says, walk this way, you know, the butler or whatever <laughs> he says. That's what Paul is saying. He, he says in chapter 4, verse 1, verse 17, 5, 2, verse 8, 5, 15. All through this section, he keeps using the word walk to describe a way that we pattern our lives. And so a walk is not something that is stop and start It's something that's consistent. It's a pattern. This is the way we behave. And his main point here in chapter four is that we need to, in our walk, be growing toward unity and Christ-like maturity. And so chapter four starts out with all of these ones. You know, one is kind of the key word here. It's used nine times in verses four through seven and then verse 16. So we see, he says, you know, there's one faith, one body. And then he goes on after the first six verses to say, now we need to go about building that body in verses 7 to 16. And then he comes back to the individual at the end of the chapter and says, you know, okay, so you all need to be contributing to the body. And that means you need to individually have this out with the old, in with the new kind of change in verses 17 to 31. He uses this metaphor of changing your clothes and Mm -hmm. the new clothes you're putting on is your new self, your new identity. He uses that word self. And it's really Christ that you're putting on as your new self. It's no longer you that's living, but Christ. And that is what brings about the change in the whole body. Because you are part of something bigger than the sum of its parts now. So you're responsible for living in a new way and contributing to this body in a new way. And he kind of sums this up in verse 16. He says, from whom, from Christ, the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly. Each part, that's you and me, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So we are a new people together, a new humanity that God is building, but we are new individuals as well. So what's the key characteristic of this new person that we are? Well, you said it there at the end of chapter four, verse 16, building itself up in love. Mm -hmm. And love is the thing, as he goes on to talk about in chapter five, he uses again, this word walk. And in the first probably 21 verses here in chapter five, 
It's all about the way that love walks. What does love do? What does love create in you in terms of action? And you could go back to the last episode where we talked about love. And there's a lot of the same connections here that he's making. But love really constrains our steps. It constrains our choices, our actions, but it also constrains us in our relationship. And so the last half of chapter five, he talks about love elevating our households, our families, the relationship that a husband and a wife have together. And he's not just talking about husbands and wives there. He's really talking about the way that Christ has a relationship as a husband with the church. So he makes this comparison there at the end of chapter five. We see an encouragement in verse 15 where he says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise making the best use of the time because the days are evil. If you think you can walk however you want, you think you can make whatever choices you want to make in your life and no one will care or it won't matter, well, that's just not true. You have to be careful in the way that you walk. And love is going to be the thing that makes you walk carefully and makes you make good choices. And he's trying to talk to them about how love changes our relationships between a husband and a wife, and husbands are to love their wives and wives are to respect their husbands. And the whole conversation there is a way of elevating each other or lifting each other up, not just in our family relationships, but in every relationship we have. Mm -hmm. We submit to each other. We elevate each other. We love each other and we treat each other well because we care about Christ. It's a motivation based on what Christ has done. So Paul's not just stopping here with our marriage relationships. What other relationships does he talk about needing to be controlled by love? Yeah, the relationship between parents and children is different in the Lord. Constantly going back to the Lord in verses 1 through 9 as he talks about these changed relationships. And so there he also talks about the different relationships between the bondservants in the house and the masters and We can see, as we kind of extrapolate these principles into our lives, we can see the relationship between any authority in our lives, between our bosses and ourselves, because you're working for the Lord. So after he talks about all of those different relationships, he gives us a way of understanding the significance of all of these things. He says, all of these things that we're doing are a part of this epic battle between good and evil. We are players in this battle. We are part of a struggle, not against flesh and blood. As he says in verse 12, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And so we have to find direction and strength in the Lord. We have to understand that our choices, our attitudes, the power and unity of the church matters at the highest level that there is. And that is God's eternal plan. And that is the ultimate struggle between good and evil. So with all of that in mind, kind of having wrapped up all the chapters, chapters one through six, how does the good news reshape the story of our lives today? I feel like sometimes we jump to chapters four through six and we want to talk just about what we need to do. 
mm-hmm. without really focusing on chapters one through three. Mm-hmm. We've got to get this holistic view of our faith so that we're not only doing the right things, but we're doing it for the right reasons. And it would be just as foolish or just as unwise, I think, to just sit around and talk about all the amazing things that God is doing and then not bring those into action in our life. So everything here in this book is really leading us to a fully formed understanding, a fully formed belief that then leads us naturally into action. And God is the one doing this work. Jesus is the one doing this work in our life. The power of Christ and the power of God in our lives is nowhere clearer, I think, than his closing words of chapter three, that he says to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory. And I think one of the big questions, especially at the end of chapter three, that you walk away asking is, well, if God is able to do more than I could ever imagine, then shouldn't I be willing to ask for things beyond what I can imagine? In my prayer, yeah, I think it gives us a lot of confidence to pray big to a God who can do bigger. Mm -hmm. And if you're willing to ask God for the things that you just don't even understand how he could do, well, he could do it. I think that that's a really good encouragement to ask, what is the ceiling that you're putting on God when you pray? He's working in us. We are, in a way, his tools. Mm -hmm. His workmanship. Yes, exactly. And what does that look like? Well, it looks like every one of us in the church working together in unity, as he talks about in chapter four, it looks like every one of us in our own lives aligning our will with his. And I think it makes our job so much more serious when we realize that we've got to be working properly. We've got to be the properly functioning part of the work. I think sometimes it's really easy for me to think of local churches or the whole church as just organizations, you know, kind of like a corporation or something, as opposed to an organism, like a body, you know, right. That's what Paul says this is. That's, I think, his favorite metaphor for what the church is. And so what he gives here in chapter four, especially is a crash course in collaboration. I used to lead a team of designers and copywriters and web developers and stuff. And we had a very collaborative culture that we all worked together on all our projects. It wasn't a bunch of silos and broken down. It was really all of us working on the same projects together in different ways. And one of the things you learn is somebody could be a great coder and not work with our team because they were a horrible collaborator. You know, it's a separate set of skills and values. I remember reading this Harvard Business Review article. It's like everyone has these two bars. There's the I bar where there's all these, those are your individual disciplines. You know, here's an engineer and that's their straight up and down I bar. And here's a designer and that's straight up and down I bar. And then there's a separate, completely different set of skills that is the T bar that goes across and connects you to that next I bar, you know? Mm -hmm. And so there's this sense of, You have to not only know how to do your work in the church, 
You have to know how to do your work together. And so he gives all of these traits that you might think, oh, well, those are small things. That's not about what's going to really produce things like humility and patience and compassion. But those are the things that let you have your (laughs) T-bar. You know, those are the things that let you work together. And he really walks through this whole understanding that everyone is here to equip each other that Christ is empowering and giving gifts to the church in each individual member so that we can equip each other to do our work of service, to build each other up, to bring each other to maturity. And so that is a different mindset than a lot of people have when I think we show up sometimes in a congregation as a consumer and we're just shopping for what is this going to do for me? You know, I don't like that. That's not doing it for me going to this Bible study. So I'm not going to go to that anymore as opposed to a collaborator or a contributor. I'm showing up to work together and be part of making a difference, not just to to see what it does for me. And in doing that work, then we get all kinds of benefit. But it's one of those lose your life to gain your life kind of things where you have to start with sacrifice and service and you walk away with all the rewards. And that's, again, the whole reason why we would even be united in the first place is sacrifice, mm-hmm. which is what he talks about in chapter five. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. When we all agree that the purpose of this new family is love and sacrifice, then that's going to cause a whole lot more unity and collaboration than it would otherwise. And for me, that informs how I approach my work. That informs how I approach being a parent. You know, every relationship I have in my life as a husband, I've got to be reflecting that kind of sacrificial love as an imitator of God Mm -hmm. everywhere. Not just in the way that I contribute in the work of the church, in every relationship. The key verse in the whole book, I think, for me is in chapter 3, verse 10. And I think the more I think about this verse, the more I start to realize this is explaining a bigger purpose for my life. You know, people ask, especially when you're a teenager or your early 20s, people are in this searching mode of trying to find themselves. What's my purpose in life? What am I here to do? Well, here's what he says, so that through the church, which is us, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord. What is all of this about? What is creation about? Why does all of this exist? What is God doing and what does it have to do with me? Here it is. In you and in me, God is showing his manifold wisdom and the riches of his mercy and his plans and his schemes, everything he's doing. He's showing that to the powers in the heavenly places. And that would include, according to chapter 6, verse 12, those powers of darkness in the heavenly places. Everyone in the heavenly places is seeing what is really going on in the world while we're busy keeping up with the Kardashians or whatever it is people are doing, (laughs) you know, (laughs) the powers in the heavenly places see there is evil and there is good. And we are the playing pieces in that battle. Yeah. 
And God is showing his manifold wisdom in that he took, I don't want to say worthless me, but, you know, pretty pitiful building material such as myself and is making out of it something that displays his love, that displays his goodness, his holiness, his purity, that has a different approach to all of the relationships I have at work and at home. And, you know, it makes me think of Job. I was going to ask you, how do you think Job fits into this story? If you think about God showing his manifold wisdom to the powers of good and evil in the heavenly places. And then you place this story we find in this weird story in the Old Testament into the book of Ephesians. Well, yeah, Job was actively being watched by the heavenly places. Mm -hmm. As we see that conversation between God and Satan about what they were going to do with Job and how Satan was questioning whether Job was faithful and why he was faithful and because God had blessed him so greatly, that's the only reason why he was faithful. You almost just wonder if there's that conversation going on about you and I mm -hmm. and the difficulties and the trials we might face, the challenges that we go through. I think we can connect with Job in a lot of ways and especially because it doesn't even appear like Job ever found out about that conversation we may never know that that conversation is going on about us, but there is interest yeah. in how we're living. Have you seen my servant, Brian? <laughs> you know, can you imagine God saying that about you to Satan? That's pretty impressive. Whenever I teach the junior high class here, I try to emphasize with them and drill kind of into their hearts a perspective that I'm also trying constantly to drill into my kids, which is that the primary context of your life is a moral battleground. What your life is more than anything else is a spiritual battleground. It's not about, did you do your homework and get good grades, except in the sense of, did you have good character? Were you diligent? Were you honest? Were you, you know what I'm saying? Did you mm -hmm. respect authorities around you? Did you respect your peers? Virtue is what the whole game of life is about. Like the fruit of the spirit we just talked about. This is what everything is about at the highest level. And that's what Ephesians lifts us up to that highest level and tells us, here's what the story is really about. Here's what's really happening. But if we can carry that perspective with us into, you know, whether or not we're complaining about our kids leaving the dishes undone, you know, <laughs> or whether or not, yeah, you know, all the little things that happen, something is going to happen today where you are going to choose. Am I going to be grateful or grumbling? <laughs> Am I going to be generous or miserly? You know, am I going to be pure or am I going to be defiled? You know, am I going to let myself be corrupted in my thinking or divided in my affections and what I'm seeking? And all of those choices add up to what God wants to show to the powers in the heavenly places. That was a long rant, but what do you think of all that? <laughs> <laughs> no, this is all good. I think there's so much depth to Ephesians in just six chapters. It's hard to even 
summarize in this short period of time. But yeah, I take away from this a whole lot just in understanding why we're even here in the first place and how that changes the way that I live and what I do and who I become as a result of that. But as we sort of wrap this up and get into our challenge, mm-hmm. I'm looking at chapter five, verse 11, and we haven't really touched on this very carefully, but he says, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Mm. And as he's talking about being the new man, as he's talking about being recreated and regenerated, I think it'd be helpful maybe this week to do a little bit of introspection and look into your own life and expose the things that you struggle with, that you find difficult, these unfruitful works of darkness, maybe that you haven't resolved or haven't addressed, and maybe just note them or write them down, or in some way in your own mind or your own heart, expose them so that you can know what you need to be working on. I heard not too long ago about this guy that every Thursday he gives up something. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Which is a pretty ambitious thing to go after. But sometimes we need to take an inventory and see, is there something that I need to give up? If it's a work of darkness, I need to just cut it out. And if it's something that could foster the unfruitful works of darkness in my life, even if it's not wrong in itself, maybe it's time to just cut it out, to expose it, to shine a light on it, and to let it go. I'm trying real hard here not to pull a rickroll on a second week in a row, but... uh... (laughs) I'm never going to give you up. (laughs) Oh, man. All right, well, that sounds good. So thanks so much, everyone, for tuning into the Bible Geeks podcast. You can find us on our website at BibleGeeks.fm. If you want to get in touch with us, head over to the menu bar and click the contact link. And you can send us an email right there and get in touch with us if you have any questions or anything you want to talk about on the show. You can also find us on social media. We are slash the Bible Geeks wherever you might find us. And until next week, everyone, may the Lord bless you and keep you. Shalom. Shalom.